Blog Talk Radio. To the Perkins platform. Uh, this is a solutions oriented podcast and radio show. Each broadcast, we dedicate about 30 minutes to explore contemporary issues and solutions in education leadership. And this is your host, Brian Perkins. Well, after a little bit of technical difficulty, I'm glad that we were able to uh, make the, the start of the show on time. Um, and so, welcome to all of you who have joined us for a discussion. Today on the Rapid EC study, it's the study that's shaping the national conversation on the uh, pandemic's effect. And so we have with us two special guests today. We have uh, Dr. Uh, Philip Fisher, um, who is a the Philip Knight Chair and Professor of Psychology at the University of Oregon, and we have also have uh, Dr. Joan Lombardi who, um, under the Obama administration from 2009-2011, served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Early Childhood Development. So welcome, Phil and Joe. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, Brian. Pleasure to be here. So glad to have you. You know, we, we only are going to be on for 30 minutes. Every now and then we get a chance to take a few calls. But I have so many questions for you, and I'm, I'm excited to have you on the show today because, um, you know, over since the start of the pandemic, I've had a number of experts on um, at various points of the kind of our, our experience during this uh, pandemic. And, and very early on, I had um, people who were psychiatrists and um, school counselors and sociologists and, and, and psychologists, and they were all kind of making predictions about um, how the pandemic might and would affect children. And when I saw and read some the results from your, your study, I was so excited and, and decided to reach out to you to, to appear because I know that it's usually the things that I'm really interested in, the people who are listening in are also very interested in some of these uh, topics. And so um, I, I guess what I want to do is I want to start with, if you could tell us a little bit about what the rapid EC study is and how long you've been doing it, and uh, we'll go from there. So uh, either of you, you want to tell me a little bit about what rapid EC is and a little bit about yourselves. Sure, Brian. I'll start, and then Joan can add to this. Uh, so the Rapid EC project started uh, last April, and it's a nationally representative survey of households with young children, specifically children age five and under, uh, that uh, is designed to really uh, listen to and amplify the voices of households to understand the well-being of parents and children and families more generally um, to understand what the needs are and to really make this information available, not just to the general public, but in, in particular to policymakers who uh, have the potential to be developing 
supports and providing resources to young households during this time. Um, the, mm -hmm. the survey um, has been funded by several philanthropic funders and is really a, an, a team effort. We do a lot of, of research on children with young families here at the University of Oregon, but um, I also really want to acknowledge Joan in her leadership role as the chair of the National Advisory because this has been really a, a team effort that extends beyond our university and has pulled in a number of national experts who come from policy and advocacy realms as well as from sort of the philanthropic world um, to work together on posing questions, on getting answers, and on making those answers widely available. Joan, what else would you have to say? Sure. No, thanks. I'm just honored to be chairing the advisory. You know, I think more than anything, Brian, what this study has been doing is bearing witness to what families are going through with young children. And the advisory group that Phil mentioned includes researchers from around the country, um, advocacy groups, uh, philanthropic representatives, and experts um, on child development who meet on a regular basis to discuss what we're finding, to help pose new questions, and really keep the, the information that's coming out of the study fresh and responsive to the changes that we're seeing throughout the life course of this pandemic. Yes, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Very interesting. I, I um, as I mentioned early on, there were a number of people that have been on and I, I distinctly remember I'm a father of four um, girls, and um, although they're not small anymore, I um, had a lot of concerns for um, people with small children. And just, just reflecting back when it first started, thinking about all the things that might be going on with families like that. And I would see small children with their with in, initially with masks on or just even wondering what they were thinking as they went into stores and saw all these people with masks, that that's, their, er, that's some of their earliest um, orientations to the world uh, are being shaped by what they see now. And this is so unlike mm -hmm. we've had, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and so I just remember thinking, I wonder – how they're taking all this in and what will it mean for them in yeah. the future. And I distinctly remember one of my guests saying, well, you know, I'm real." It, it was like, thank goodness. Um, children are very resilient. And I think he, he, that was like a month or two after we just entered the pandemic. And I just would love to hear, I'm sure the listeners would love to hear too, a little bit about what people are actually saying that if you have such information about um, what's happening in their households with these small children. Absolutely. Uh, you know, what you're saying in terms of your experience at the beginning of the pandemic was very consistent with, with our perspective as well. When things were initially shutting down and we all kind of came to the realization that life was going to be fundamentally changing for some time, one of our concerns was that there really wasn't an existing scientific knowledge base about what that would mean 
for households. And there started to be, we saw in the media and elsewhere, that there were a lot of anecdotal reports similar to what the kind that you're that you're saying, like what will be the impact of kids seeing only, you know, people's faces from the from the bridge of the nose upwards and what's going to be the impact of of screen time, increased screen time. But without good quality, rigorous scientific data, it's all guesswork. And so one of the, the reasons that we got this survey up and running so quickly and also designed it to be both nationally representative and regularly occurring was because we really wanted to tell the, the picture, not just in a, an occasional snapshot, but much more in kind of a moving picture of what the experiences of households with young children look like over the course of the pandemic. And so we started with weekly surveys in April. Um, starting in August, we shifted to every other week. But we've really accrued a vast collection of information over the course of that time. I'll say what I, I think are the primary stories that have been evolving from our data. And then again, I would invite Joan to, to add with her perspectives about other key things. But first and foremost, we have uh, identified very consistently in, a, in our data what we've referred to as a chain reaction of hardship. That is, um, we know that the, the pandemic is creating a lot of stress and challenges for households with young children. And if you want to understand sort of how children are doing and what's what, what are some of the biggest challenges that children are facing? It really all seems to consistently go back for so many households to difficulties and challenges paying for basic needs. Um, we have seen the rates of what is referred to as material hardship, difficulty paying for food, for, for rent, for utilities, as uh, something that has affected a huge portion of this uh, population of families with young children um, into the millions of families based on our of the proportions that we're finding are experiencing difficulties making ends meet on a on a day-to-day -day basis and those numbers were high in the early days of the pandemic especially since the federal relief efforts ended they've only gotten higher um, and what we see is that those particular challenges are affecting children uh, both directly, but also very indirectly in the sense that they're stressing parents out. And so when we follow families across the, the span of the study, what we find is that if in a given week a, a family says, look, we, we don't have enough money for food, in subsequent weeks we can identify that those caregivers are now having elevated levels of stress, of depression and anxiety and loneliness. And then in the weeks following, they're reporting that their kids are starting to struggle. So that kind of unfolding across time of children having a difficult, difficult time because of the, the hardships that families are going through is one of the major findings of the study. There's a, there's a, sure. a second piece to that, which is sort of like some glimmers of hope, um, which is that families are also like the thing that seems to be providing the greatest buffers around this are uh, the emotional support that people are deriving, in particular, from very close in in their world. So from, from their own children, very young children are actually a source of comfort to many families, uh, from neighbors and from uh, people that are much more in people's immediate environment. So people's social networks have kind of pulled inwards. People are reporting less emotional support from coworkers and, and friends and much more from neighbors and their own children. Um, but that's really mm -hmm. helping to somewhat offset some of these stresses. Um, Joan, do you want sure. to speak to the, yeah. well, just the, the issues the of the disparities? Yes. 
Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, I think we what we've seen over time is that as the infection rates go up, the stress in the families go up. And if you think about what's sure. happening now, it's like a perfect storm. We've got rate, um, infection rates going up, winter's coming on, the political climate is different, there's a lack of resources because there hasn't been a relief package, schools are closed, and holiday stress is coming. So if you put all that together, you know, common sense will tell you that the stress that it has on parents also affects their children. And, you know, just to put this in context, it's not like families were Families needed supports before this all started. We know that, you know, one out of five families with children under three were in poverty even before this started, and that we had uh, a, a number of uh, stressors on families, childcare taking a big bite of their family income. Now they are losing their childcare, their schools are closed. So the cumulative effect of stress on the families is, is something that I think the country needs to pay attention to and policymakers need to pay attention to. Absolutely. Um, and, and so um, just thinking about your, your previous role um, in the federal administration, um, it makes me think, well, the question that comes up for me is, so what is it exactly that, um, our policymakers, but m- more specifically our administrators, should be thinking about around the support that goes with this. So I, I'll tell you what I'm thinking. What, what came to mind as you were talking about um, people being unable to um, meet their their kind of subsistence needs in, in some cases and and then the numbers, the staggering statistics around poverty, um, what came to mind for me is that what a lot of us know and realize is that there's a, there's a, uh, a safety net right now that has been put in place in, in terms of the moratorium. So not even um, talking about the aid that comes, but the moratorium on evictions and, and foreclosures uh, is, is set to expire in December. And I'm sure right. a lot of people feel the stress of that looming. Um, is there, did you have anything you could add about like what, what you think about what, what should people be doing and kind of ramping up to be prepared for after the first of the year? Yeah, well, I think, you know, your point is so important. Let's just take our findings. We find food insecurity, like lots of other studies that are taking place. But we also know that the lack of food affects the overall well-being of the family, not just from a nutrition point of view, but from a social-emotional point of view, if you're worried about how you're going to put food on your table. It's the same thing with housing, of course, and they're interrelated. Mm -hmm. So the thought Mm -hmm. that there will be more housing crisis as the winter hits is very alarming, not only for the adults in the family, but for their young children in particular. And, you know, Brian, Mm -hmm. we know, science is pretty clear, that what happens in the early years has a long-term impact on learning, behavior, health. So it's really important from, uh, you know, a policymaking perspective that we get some action, that we get additional relief in place. I know they're still debating 
Um, we need that relief immediately, not only direct relief for families, but food, continued food assistance and childcare assistance. Um, there has been a tremendous demand for additional childcare resources to provide those supports to families in the immediate. I also think that, you know, you have a lot of people that listen from the school community. The schools are playing such an uh, important role. They always do in the lives of families and particularly families with young children who really need that socialization time when they're young, um, but they have to, that has to be done in a safe environment. And we're very concerned with these alarming rates that that doesn't allow for that. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So Phil, tell me a little bit about what, what some of the questions, some of the questions look like um, that people responded to. Yeah. Great question, Brian. Um, We, when we structured the survey, Um, we knew that there were going to be some trends that we wanted to follow across time. So we always ask in every survey about adult well-being in the areas that I mentioned. So things like stress, depression, loneliness, anxiety. We also ask about child, children's well-being. So how are children in terms of things like fussiness um, and, uh, you know, like acting out kinds of behaviors. So we always ask about those things. But we wanted to really get a holistic picture of what's going on in households. So we also have been regularly asking about these these basic needs issues and the economic well-being and employment status of, of households. We've asked a, a large number of questions also on a regular basis about um, health care and about things like are people still going to well child visits um, and getting vaccinations mm-hmm. for their for their offspring. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are those mm-hmm. are questions that we've asked regularly about, and of course about childcare, which Joan mentioned is like one of the linchpins to to families being able to to maintain you know regular employment and and really to restarting the economy. Um, in addition to those yeah. questions, we have regularly dropped in sort of special topics asking about things like what is what is family conflict looking like these days or who are people getting the yes. most emotional support from? Um, and then the other thing that I wanted to mention is that we, we decided early on to include not only like these quick survey questions, because the, the survey is administered online, uh, people can access it by smartphone or by computer or tablet, but we've also uh, created a, a set of open-ended questions. And at last counting, we have over 100,000 responses that people have provided written responses to about things like what are the biggest challenges that people are facing, what are the things that are helping the most. More recently, we asked a question about what would you like your policymakers and elected officials to know? Um, And those responses Mm -hmm. really have been, in many instances, devastating for us to read. Again, Joan mentioned it feels like we're often bearing witness to to this unfolding tragedy. People are saying, I can't get, you know, I have to, I don't have childcare, and I have to go to work. And when I come home, I don't have time to go to the food bank to get the food that I need because nobody's watching my child. So I have to get home immediately, right. and so I'm skipping meals. Right. So we're really, right. really seeing this crisis unfold in real time. Sure, and I, I've I can only imagine what you're seeing with this kind of survey. I have uh, a, a number of national surveys that I um, was the investigator for in school some years ago, 
and the the data that comes from those open-ended areas is just invaluable. You know, you you get a very different picture from what you might ask in a you know a, a regular survey question. Yes. Those open-ended uh, comments, um, while rich, are in a lot of cases just devastating to to bear yes. witness to. Um, and so, you know, I I also think about another thing that that um, really interested me, and I would, I'd love to hear if you have any at least preliminary data about this. Um, just talking with uh, some of my colleagues, um, as I mentioned, um, Joan, to you also before, I I direct a program where we're preparing school leaders already in some very uh, difficult context. And and so we're talking about parenting and mm-hmm. um, how, uh, you know, really and truly a lot of people made the decision to become parents with a fairly reliable sense of what that meant. You know, before the <laughs> pandemic, you you could reasonably predict, okay, you know, this is what it means to be a parent and I, I'm taking on that responsibility under this set of circumstances. You know, I will be able to go to work. Um, I'm not particularly good with kids, but I'll, you know, I'll go. I'll, you know, I can, I can handle the, the, say, the 5 to 10 o'clock shift, so to speak. Some people uh, have, have bought into parenting under those conditions. And then things switched up. And yeah. now here we are where it is a full, I mean, full-time job. It was always a full-time job, but now it is really a full-time job. It is, I am doctor. I am, you know, kind of, if right. there are more than one, is there more than one child and I'm a conflict mediator. I am, you know, teacher. teacher. And all of these things right. that parents are having to say and be. Absolutely. I yeah. just wonder. You- so you say you have some of those, that data around Get of adult wellness as well. So I'd, I'd love to hear anything you. you so have and they're in that connected, area. and it's connected. I mean, look, nothing really prepares you to be a parent until you become one. I mean, it's an exciting time in life, but it's also often stressful in normal during nor- normal times. So That's now, right. with all the other um, things happening in life around. Uh, your economics, and, you know, I I should note that we're seeing disparities, not just economic disparities, but racial and ethnic disparities that mirror what we're seeing on the physical impact side. So, you know, I think what's so important for school leaders, school leaders always play, as I said, a key role with families. More and more, I think we're starting to see how important it is for schools to have a family engagement perspective, to be partners with parents um, in the education and care of their children. And this, this moment, especially in schools where, you know, we know that it was in schools that children got a high pr- proportion of their meals yeah. every day. That's and right. so That's right. <laughs> schools are central to families, especially as families change. You know, my children, I have children, I have a grandchild, but they're 200 miles away from me. And right now Mm -hmm. I can't even see them. So the community becomes particularly important. And so the school as a key hub 
in in the community to support families has become critically important during the pandemic, even if they're not open, for other resources, for sending materials home, for making sure that they've got online access, which is a huge issue, particularly in poor communities. They have a key role, and they're going to have even more important a role as children return to school because Mm -hmm. they've been home. They may have had less attention than they need. They may have had more attention than than they were getting before. We, you know, it's, we have the whole range of families, but I think those social emotional needs of children as they return to school are going to be as important as their need to continue with their, you know, basic skills. They become critically important for for schools to pay attention to. Yeah, yeah. and I, let me just add to that, Brian, because and Joan touched on this, but I think it's it's the other main narrative kind of strand that has come out of of the survey throughout. It it has to do with the that pre-existing um, disparities based on race and ethnicity, as well as income, as well as family structure, um, that were already mm-hmm. there. So that, you know, even if you were up for parenting, you were facing specific challenges um, that were not your own doing, but that were really the result of more of these systemic kinds of issues that they have widened dramatically in the data that we've been collecting. And I think one of the things Mm -hmm. that relates to your your question um, that is particularly wrenching for us to observe, and we observe it again and again in our data, is that uh, when we look at families we look at their income level from the pre-pandemic period. And what we have consistently seen is that Black and Latinx households that were in the middle and upper income brackets before the pandemic, large proportions of them are reporting increased difficulties covering basic needs. And that's not a surprise in terms of what's understood about the wealth gap, about how Black and Latinx households can have a much more tenuous grasp on the middle class because of these structural kinds of inequalities that have existed also because of supporting extended Mm -hmm. family members. But nevertheless, Mm -hmm. what we're seeing is that people who were doing fine before the pandemic in terms of their economic well-being are not doing fine and that that's, again, being passed along to children. So among the things that I think we really want policymakers to know is that we need to target relief specifically at households with young children because of the science of early brain development that that Joan mentioned. But we also need to not just target that that relief just generically at households with young children because there are some Mm -hmm. subgroups that are struggling particularly and to whom getting relief to both economic and the kinds of emotional and social supports that Joan's talking about can't wait. And, and the longer we wait, the, the more we're going to be bearing witness to the long-term multi-generational effects of this pandemic on children's ultimate ability to learn and to be productive members of society and so forth. Right, right. And well, thank you for sharing that as well. And as we prepare to, to, uh, uh, wrap up. I, I do have uh, another question for you, and this one is more on behalf of people who are are going to be on the receiving end of children that have been, you know, early childhood area, and they they may or may not have spent the necessary amount of time 
in a, in an environment with other kids, but based on what you what you are seeing in your study, what advice would you have for the school leaders? I mean, we're talking about the practitioners, the teachers. What are what about the people in the school? What <laughs> advice would you have for them about where what they need to be aware of? Like, hey, here's a heads up. This is what people are saying about their their circumstances during this pandemic you potentially you're going to see these children and these families in august or september of next year here's at least what we say right now you need to be focused on when you get them so let me let me let me start and then give joan the last word there is a there's already a vast amount of knowledge and understanding that's been that's been coming from the whole world of trauma informed care trauma informed education that basically has helped raise people's awareness that when difficult experiences occur and especially when they're prolonged and ongoing that it can impact the way that children learn their social emotional development their ability to process information and uh, and and to benefit from educational environments. And I would suggest that we turn, not that every child returning to school is traumatized, but that the, the, the wealth of information about how to be really focused on what children may be, uh, may be doing or thinking or act, the way that they may be acting as informed by the fact that they may have been impacted by the events of the pandemic will give people a lot of very clear tools to use to make cues more regular, mm-hmm. to be exceedingly nurturing and positive, to try to have the best and most established routines so that kids who maybe have experienced a long period of, of unpredictability can begin to settle back into established routines. All of that knowledge and information that's come from science and really kind of infuse the trauma-informed movement is what I think we need to be thinking about. And we need to not just assume that we're going to be returning to business as usual once kids show back up, but be thinking about things from from the more trauma-informed lens to really much more personalize the kinds of educational experiences that kids will be needing. Joan, what else would you add? Mm -hmm. I I so agree. And just to build on that, as we go into 21, I hope we have a national coming together around our children and families, including in particular our our young children, and that, first of all, we give the school leaders, the school teachers, the child care teachers support because they are essential workers that have been too often overlooked, and, and that they, we give them the support so they in turn can support parents and families and get prepared for this return in new ways. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to think through this a lot and hold hands with parents and send very clear messages to all, to everyone to stay healthy, to eat well, to exercise, to take time for yourself, to try to have fun together again, because I think, you know, what we have to do is try to focus on the joy that childhood could be and help children and families get through this very difficult period and I hope that before the end of the year, Congress acts to make that more of a reality. Agreed. Well, here, wow. here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank both of you for agreeing to come on today. I know there are a lot of people that are really appreciative of what you've shared, and I'm 
going to keep my eye out for uh, additional uh, information about this and share it with my audiences that um, would be really interested in this about your your further analysis, particularly of that qualitative data um, that um, you have. And so um, thanks again. Um, and thanks again for everyone who tuned in today and um, is listening to us. Um, join us um, on Tuesday, December 15th at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time when we have uh, Mr. Joshua Friedman from Six Seconds who's going to talk about something actually is a great segue from this, uh, the case for emotional intelligence and leadership um, is the focus of the next broadcast. And, and Joan, actually your, what you mentioned there at the end um, really requires people to think differently about what's important um, uh, and, and, and how we can get back to normal as quick as possible or shall I say a new normal um, and and pay attention to uh, a different set of indicators versus what we were thinking about a year ago. Um, so uh, join us um, if you can on um, on Tuesday, December fifteenth at five p.m. And so again, Joan and Phil, thank you, thank you so much for the work that you're doing, and just um, ask you to stay safe. Uh, and um, we hope to have you on again um, when we can do a follow-up and hear about some more of this um, absolutely important information for our policymakers and practitioners to have. So um, until next time, everyone listening, go well, stay well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. My pleasure. Pleasure.